Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... The Golden State Killer. Joseph James D'Angelo was born on November 8, 1945, but this former cop and serial rapist and killer was known by many other names during the time he terrorized communities across California between 1973 and 1986. The Golden State Killer, the Visalia Ransacker, East Area Rapist, East Side Rapist, East Bay Rapist, the Diamond Knot Killer, Night Stalker, Original Night Stalker, Countless books have been written about the Golden State Killer, which was his most popular moniker. Undoubtedly, no one spent more time and effort on covering him than author Anne Penn, whose life was directly impacted by D'Angelo. Ms. Penn has written four books on the Golden State Killer, her latest Endgame and is my guest today on Murder Most Foul. Today I'm talking with, as an expert, author Anne Penn, who has written uh, four books uh, on this particular gentleman. Uh, her, her, we think, she'll, t- she'll talk about it, her final book is called Endgame of the Most Dangerous Killer, the Golden State Killer. And uh, so welcome, Anne. Well, thank you for having me. You're welcome. So again, I I, I was a little bit uh, glib there about his his he has many names because he and you'll fill us in. Of course, I'm just going to try and put a little sketch out there and then stand back. Uh, but he uh, operated, if you will, uh, between 1973 and 86, we think, and uh, through various uh, communities in the Golden State area, but in, in different towns and cities in California. So obviously, because he wasn't identified, each person or each um, authority in that area gave him a moniker. As you mentioned in your book, the monikers, I love that, different monikers, and he has several. In fact, again, I'm not trying to be flip, but at one point they had to replace one of them. Uh, he was called the Night Stalker, and then Richard Ramirez, another famed serial killer, uh, was called the Night Stalker. So they had, they were competing over Night Stalker, so authorities named uh, D'Angelo the original Night Stalker because we're guessing his crime started before Richard Ramirez. So um, before we even get into it, tell us what drew you um, as, a, as a writer, not only to write a book, uh, but to write four books about uh, D'Angelo. Well, you know, it's um, one of those things. I never imagined that I would document it, um, the crimes and the, the investigations and all the information that I had run across. But it, it seemed to me, you know, since... Um, the only other books that had been out there at the time that I first put uh, Murder on His Mind, Serial Killer, out 
that the only books out there pretty much were from law enforcement or retired law enforcement. And, uh, and then also one of the victims of rape had put a book out. So um, I, I never knew or intended to, to do this particular subject. It was one of those things where after a lifetime of being afraid of this particular perpetrator, and in the back of my mind, I would always worry because uh, I knew that, you know, serial killers could see you at the end of your driveway and, and pick you out as a victim. I knew that it was dangerous in Sacramento in the 70s. I left there because of it. Uh, there were serial killers and rapists that seemed all over the place at the time. And so um, one of the things I, that motivated me to write was the fear that I always had, and I wanted to get rid of that fear. I was tired of worrying about putting my shades down at, at dark instantly, uh, always afraid at the kitchen window at night, uh, just different things that were still invading my consciousness. And so I thought, well, the only way to, to work through it, a lot of times what I do is I write. And so I began to uh, get involved in investigating this in depth. But it's one of those things that I started in 1980 looking at serial killers. And Ted Bundy was the first serial killer that I really got involved in looking at. I wrote two chapters on him in the first book because I thought that they really do have an influence on one another. And Ted Bundy and the Golden State Killer were running around at the same time frames, um, except that Ted got caught. And uh, so I, I really thought that there was some connection in how they maybe feed off of each other or are aware of each other. And so I read about um, Ted Bundy in Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me. And ironically, um, my, my stepdad at the time came to my house and he saw my the book on my shelf and he said, oh, I know her, Anne Rule. He went to college with her and was a friend of hers. They used to smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and chat uh, for uh, the whole time that they were both at the same school. And they were lifelong friends. So <laughs> what a small world, right? And And it was fascinating to me because my stepdad was a um, criminal justice major and had uh, met Anne that way. So it, it is a real small world. But that's how I kind of got involved in researching serial killers and trying to figure out how and why they do what they do. Um, one of the things, this is just my personal preference, for the most uh, most of the cases that, that I do, I don't really delve into um, the subjects uh uh, early life. A lot of people like to, and, and, and I, like you, of trying to figure out why people do the things they do. And I have coming up, I hope, a couple of uh, psychologists talking just about that, the psychology of murder, um, especially even serial murder. I mean, you know, crime of passion is, is so different. But so I don't get into they were abused or they didn't go to this or they didn't do that. The little I read right. on Wikipedia of Mr. D'Angelo's uh, upbringing, uh, I did nothing jumped out at me. What did jump out at me um, was that he was a policeman. Right. So yep. tell, uh, tell, it, was, yeah. it was a brilliant way to go about doing what he did. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there have been others that, that have studied how to, to, to do what serial killers do, but... His um, stint in the Navy and then his uh, education in criminal justice, um, he really studied what, you know, what the procedures were, and, and he knew what to do to outsmart them. 
and if he is also the Zodiac, he already had put a lot of thought into it while he was in the Navy, because as soon as he gets out of the Navy, we see 1968 murders of uh, David Faraday and uh, Betty Lou um, Jensen. So uh, anyway, long story short, I, he, it was a good way for him to know what he studied, what law enforcement would do, even as the Visalia ransacker, which he admitted to being, um, in Visalia in 1973 to 1976, he knew that if he attacked in Visalia and he drove home to Exeter, that it's about a 15-minute drive, that it would take law enforcement, if somebody called and he was burglarizing a home or ransacking, that it would take them anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes to get out into a rural area. And so he did that um, without ever being caught. It was not that difficult for him. So that worked for him. He did it over and over and over. So by the time he became the East Area Rapist, he lived in Auburn, attacked in Sacramento County, different jurisdiction. He would attack and drive home, attack and drive home, and nobody could figure it out. Now, you mentioned robbery, and and we've mentioned robbery, and we've mentioned rape, and we mentioned murder. Why don't you uh, give us a little bit of a a, a flavor of what were some of the things he was doing, and then we may want to pick a couple of of cases. I don't want to be gory, but I want my listeners to understand just how evil someone can be. So why don't you just give us a little bit of the litany of the things that, that either he admitted to or they were able to pin on him? Well, you know, they charged him with 13 murders um, spanning from 1975 until 1986. And in addition, they charged him, uh, well, actually, there were many uncharged rapes that he admitted to uh, in June of 2020, and which is good for the victims that he was um, held responsible for that. But uh, he also um, was charged with different other uh, things like you know, having a weapon and just different, you know, enhancements um, that he, you know, admitted to as well in detail in June. So, um, but he has not been charged with anything else, and I don't know that he ever will be, to tell you the truth. Um, I am not privy to what they may still be investigating or if he'll ever talk in detail about all the other things that he is responsible for. But uh, the story told to a lot of people, and I hear it repeated over and over, is that he attacked from 1973 to 1986, and that pretty much sounds like the end of the story. But um, lots of people out in the community and uh, the sleuths and all the different people where we were in his attack zones, and I was there in 1976 to 1979. I was born in Sacramento. I was born at Mather Air Force Base. And so I was there while he was attacking, and it was relentless. Um, so he was all over Sacramento County in Rancho Cordova and Citrus Heights areas, um, just in a couple of attacks in South Sacramento, which is where I was in school and, and different things over time. And so he was there, um, you know, for three years attacking. And then it sounded like they thought he left. Uh, in 1979, 1980-ish, um, but when in fact he bought a home there in Citrus Heights in his attack zones in 1980 after being fired as a cop. So interesting, huh? And um, uh, as with uh, you know, 
we throw these people around, Ted Bundy, um, and other serial rapists slash killers, a lot of them usually rape and kill. And either they're raping and killing to get rid of the witness or it's part of the, the thrill. Um, in his case, uh, I'm again, just scanning some of the things that I've read online. He did some killing, some raping, but he killed men as well as women, didn't he? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. He, it, it was interesting because he was raping women in Sacramento and, and they would, they said in a paper that, oh, he, he's just raping when the, the husbands are gone. And so he began to uh, attack when the husbands were home. And then eventually, of course, in 1979 on, we see murders of couples, uh, which is the same thing the Zodiac did. He killed couples. So, um, and he tied them the same way as uh, the couple at Lake Berryessa. Um, a lot of things he said were the same as Zodiac and as the East Area Rapist, exactly the same. There was no variation to what he said. So, um, but he did kill couples, and um, and he also killed people alone. So women alone, um, and speculatively, because um, I have you know circumstantial evidence, and I'm not law enforcement, so I cannot say. But um, there were other crimes that certainly fit his mo and fit his um, consistent behavior. And there are, are are there any that again the list the list of crimes uh, uh, of burglary did he do like burglaries sometimes that either no one was home or so in other words just or was he trying to do something more I'm just trying to get a feel of did yeah. his his goal when he went out that night or that afternoon was it always I want to find someone and rape and kill or is it just yeah, I feel like breaking into a house today I think that you know he was. Pretty well. Uh, he planned things very, very meticulously, mm -hmm. and so I think it just depended on where he was at any given time. You know what what persona he really was inhabiting, which was the Visalia ransacker. Uh, he didn't kill anyone in that series until uh, somehow he ended up um, killing um, Professor Claude Snelling in 1975, and he did admit to that. Um, and he had stalked Beth Snelling for a period of time. And he ended up trying to drag her out of her home in Visalia um, and ended up killing her father. So I find it interesting, though, that he had done all these attacks all over the place for a period of time, more than a couple of years. And then all of a sudden he just, you know, I mean, he attacks when her father's in the home. He probably knew that. Uh, didn't seem to care. I don't know if he went there to kill. Uh, it would seem so. So um, there, it just depended on you know, kind of where his head was at, I'm sure, or what rages he was in or what mood he was in. Uh, you know, he certainly uh, stalked people ahead of time. And he did go into homes ahead of time to, you know, check it out. And he moved things around. He, you know, moved weapons. He did things so that probably when he did come back, he knew not only the layout of the house, but he also knew, you know, if there was some weapon that he could be harmed by. So... Um, now, did he, um, was he, with all these names uh, in these uh, areas that were being hit, did, were some of them or all of them simultaneous, or did he sort of, you know, kind of, or did he go back to a certain area of California, um, you know, and then, then move to another one, or did he kind of finish someplace and either based on I'm done here or where he was uh, physically located, just pick up the next town? You know, he was all over the state of California. Um, 
when he was at East Terry Rapist, he went from Sacramento to Contra Costa County to um, different, you know, locations in Concord, Walnut Creek, just all over the place. Um, Stockton, um, you know, Modesto, Fresno. He was all over the place whenever he was an East Area Rapist. He did the same kinds of crimes in different areas, and it was terrifying for every uh, jurisdiction, I'm sure. But And, and then as the uh, original Night Stalker, um, he, you know, it was a little less frequently that he attacked, but he went from Orange County uh, or Santa Barbara to um, other counties down there, Ventura, etc., and and he killed people there, but he did them far enough apart and in different jurisdictions that it took law enforcement a while to connect the dots. And how long did it take uh, for the various jurisdictions to connect the dots and to realize that they were all probably dealing with the same uh, serial killer? Well, there were those who thought he was the same guy from the beginning, really. Visalia um, PD came to Sacramento in 1977 and again in 1978 to try to tell Sacramento that they thought he was their same guy, and they didn't um, believe that. And that happened uh, in different, you know, jurisdictions. Santa Barbara said, "No, no, it's not the same guy." They they talked about it in great depth, really. Uh, that that you know they had pretty much ruled it out. And one of the reasons they did was because they each had their own suspect already. Uh, many times, um, which of course didn't pan out. They they were unsolved murders for a long, long time. But they, each jurisdiction did talk about why he was missed or why he was not uh, connected for a really long time. I will say that Larry Compton, when he was in Contra Costa County and then retired, uh, he thought this is the same guy. This this guy's killing people down in Southern California, and he sounds like the same guy. And he did try to communicate that. Um, but they um, they didn't know for a fact until somewhere between 1999 and 2000 they did the DNA testing and it came back that it was the East Area Rapist original Night Stalker was the same man. So by 2001, I knew that he was the same guy and the rest of the world saw it on A&E, you know, different shows that were, Bill Curtis talked about it. He did a whole show on it back in the early 2000s. So we knew for a really long time, from 2001 at least until 2018, that that was the same guy. You mentioned uh, couples, that he took on couples. That has a very personal um, connection to you, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, I grew up in Sacramento, and I was there during the East Area Rapist attacks. Um, Prior to that, um, one of the things that I talked about in, in my books, and I try to connect it for people, is and this is what blew me away, and, and it's scary, and it gives you chills. It makes you feel like, oh, my God, the guy was there. I mean, he, he came to our area in Auburn and Sacramento, Rancho Cordova, Folsom, um, back in the 50s, which means that he was there the entire time I was growing up personally, and there's all these women who ran across to this guy. He was in our spaces in every single area of Sacramento for decades. And, of course, we found him there in 1980 to 2018. He lived in Citrus Heights in the attack zones. I mean, it was perfect for him. And he must have just really relished that. But one of the things that happened to me when I was 14 years old is I was chased down my own street by two men in a truck, two. And I barely escaped being abducted. 
come to find out, of course, back in that, the day, of course, they didn't tell us as young girls that there were dangers out there. And there were young girls being uh, abducted and raped and things were going on uh, in Sacramento. And so um, I was terrified, of course, after that. It changed how I felt about walking around freely. It changed how I felt I was uh, afraid. And so um, and I barely escaped. So then what happens is a few years later, it was four or five years later, um, the East Area Rapist shows up, and I had just moved into my own apartment, and he ended up attacking one minute away from my apartment. Um, there had been uh, someone in our apartment, myself and the woman that lived upstairs also with blonde hair, long blonde hair, and, um, and he didn't have a type. He attacked every color hair, but the point is is that he was in the apartments, or somebody was, and, and was in our underwear drawers, which is also part of what he did. He'd get into people's houses and you know, move things around or take things. And and underwear was one of those things. And then he ends up attacking just down the street in April of 1978. And so I was afraid for a really long time. And 1979, um, they say that he left uh, the area, and he, he did pretty much. Uh, at least the media wasn't reporting him there anymore. And um, so he ends up in my... March of 1980, um, I had grandparents that lived right down the street from me off Highway 99. Uh, Lyman Smith was married to my grandmother, Vionia, uh, from 1960 until 1990 when she passed away. But in 1980, um, the murders of Lyman and Charlene Smith occurred. And uh, the story was told to me by my family. They um, were bludgeoned to death with a fireplace log. And I found that so totally horrific, like most people would, that it, it really solidified my fear of people coming into your home at night, that you're not safe in your home. I don't like sliding glass doors and just things like that. And my grandfather was devastated, and I was there. I used to see them and be with them all the time. And so I was right up close. He, um, The murder happened... Uh, in March, and I was engaged to be married in May, and my grandparents were like, well, my grandma said, I don't know if we can make it to the wedding. And my grandfather said, well, yeah, we'll be there for sure. And uh, so at my wedding, he was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing, and most people will tell you they remember that uh, because he was in a church just a few weeks before that, five weeks before the murders of Lyman and Charlene occurred. And so it was very difficult to watch um, up close someone grieve uh, that way. And uh, so it was just something that was just horrific. Mr. D'Angelo, and I say that with as much sarcasm as I can, it wasn't a shrinking violet. During this time, uh, during his history, he would write letters and phone calls uh, right. to, to, to former, I found one here, where he called a, um, uh, a former victim, so someone who survived. And, and the victim attributes, uh, she believes it was him, and the caller just said, 
Merry Christmas. It's me again. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about the letters and the the sort of, you know, I don't know if you didn't feel he was getting enough publicity that he would, you know, uh, sort of communicate. Well, you know what I think he did that for? It was basically just to terrorize the victim one more time, and he got a lot of kicks out of that, the power and control over the person that he had harmed. And so, you know, I think he kept logs and information about who he attacked and because he would go back seven years, ten years later and call that person on anniversaries or say, remember me, or, you know, just, he was just very sadistic and uh, relentless, really, um, re-victimizing people. And, and then, of course, being in the attack zone all those years, I mean, and then there were other murders from that same area and also across jurisdictional lines and, and really close by in Placer County. So, you know, he, he just really enjoyed what he did. He was really organized. He was really meticulous about keeping records of who he attacked and how he could track them. Uh, he had access as a police officer to, you know, people for six years uh, as a police officer. Uh, so he, he was just very good at keeping track of who he had harmed and kept trying to do that. And... Uh, one of the other, uh, not wishing to mention other cases, but it's it's interesting when I find parallels, as you have found parallels in your work, um, with the Unabomber, that the the hours and hours and hours of investigative yeah. work across jurisdictions, which was a problem at that time, uh, mm-hmm. and it might have been a problem here too. That, like you said, they were they were protecting their own suspect and at times the different jurisdictions but the fbi and in case of unabomber uh you know tobacco and firearms you know, all these and they were working and they were working and they were working and they never and yes he was a genius but he was very rudimentary very very low tech with his bombs and things and yeah. but they they could not connect them until the people know the story that that a relative recognized his writing pattern in his manifesto and and right. that denouement from there um in the case of uh uh d'angelo again the fbi is is involved and and certainly dna by the 2000s is you know, de rigueur in any um, uh, investigation. So they had DNA samples, but he was not in any um, traditional database, he himself. So if you're, right. you're a crime, if you're a rapist and you had to give as part of your sentence, you gave up DNA, bing, bang, boom, uh, they find, well, guess what? You know, we know you're back out there. But there was no um, DNA in criminal databases of Mr. D'Angelo, but something else very unique in this case and 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 solved it comes up right and and it it's interesting i mean they they knew eventually that genetic genealogy would be how it would be solved because they had his profile it wasn't in any database like you say uh codas etc i mean they would run it you know periodically i'm sure and i know that uh they they did the same thing with the partial profile that they had um of the zodiac um but they also had uh, a full profile of Sherry Jo Bates killer, by the way, for the, from the who Zodiac claimed he killed, but he didn't, in my opinion. And um, I know there's a completely different suspect because of the profile. It doesn't match DNA with uh, Joseph D'Angelo. So if Joseph D'Angelo is a Zodiac, then we know for a fact that the Zodiac did not kill Sherry Jo Bates. 
Um, so anyway, <laughs> no, that, I, fo- I follow it. No, I do. And a lot of people might not, but no, that was very succinct of, of how yeah. you rule something out, you know, in reverse or whatever. So, uh, mm-hmm. no, it, it right. makes perfect sense. Well, I had talked to Riverside uh, County and, and, and tried to figure out because, you know, all the reports, I, I haven't read any of the books on the, the case because I didn't want to bias my research on it, um, personally, but, when I called them, uh, I, I asked them, I said, you know, the hair in her hand when she was found um, deceased was dark hair, dark sort of curly hair, from mm-hmm. what I understand. And so I said, was it from a wig? Because D'Angelo liked disguises, you know. And and then, of course, eventually we find out that, in fact, D'Angelo was on a ship in the middle of the ocean, so there's no way he could have killed Cherry Joe Bates. He wasn't there. But there was a lot of speculation uh, about the Zodiac as well. And so they had, you know, a full profile, really, when, when they were able to build profiles of who killed Jerry Joe Bates. And, um, and you know, like I said, they, they did apparently um, clear him through the DNA profiles that they had from the hair from Sherry Joe and then also from um, D'Angelo's profile. So... Anyway, it did not match. <laughs> so, but that was so what they did having a profile, but not being able to match it to anything in in, uh, in a criminal database. As you said, right. they they went a different way uh, mm-hmm. of trying to well, match him to a relative or match the the attacks to mm-hmm. someone in a, and they got lucky with uh, with uh, you know an ancestry kind of uh, of a genealogy. Is that correct? Well, I wouldn't call it luck. I would call it absolute due diligence. Good, they for, good, for, good for you. Yeah. Ba- ba- my bad. Yeah. yeah, no, no worries. It was 300 years back. They had to go back 300 years and, and 25 family trees they built and followed them down till they had 10 trees and then down to about six. And um, from what I understand, then they began to really look at who would fit the, the time frames, the age, the, you know, the geography, et cetera, until they finally had it down to, I believe it was six suspects, and only one of them had blue eyes uh, in checking with the DMV. It was D'Angelo. And so they began to follow him and to try to capture his DNA uh, via, you know, trash or discard, which is legal to do. And, uh, and it matched, 100% matched. So, um, you know, you could say alleged serial killer, and he was until he was actually convicted in June of 2020. But the thing about uh, where they fed it into GEDmatch, GEDmatch, uh, that's G-E-D and then MATCH, was around from 2010 moving forward. And I don't know that they were able to get their arms around how to search through a database without causing privacy issues. Like they approached, I think, Ancestry and a couple of the others, and they just wouldn't do it unless they had an actual warrant. But if you get a warrant for something, it's like they're searching in the dark. They didn't know who they were searching for. They couldn't say. And so it was a difficult situation. So when they went to GEDmatch, it's an open database. It was at the time where there were no restrictions. If you signed up, you said, yeah, you can use my DNA for whatever. Um, So they approached GEDmatch. But what was interesting to me was they wanted to do that for several years, actually. There were talks about it. Um, Paul Holes talked about it. Uh, different people talked about it in 2013. 
And so we knew moving forward that that was how it was going to happen. The only thing that delayed it, in my opinion, was that they were trying to figure out how to do it without causing privacy issues. Five years later, and I'm, you know, I'm in a hurry because I've been waiting <laughs> my entire life for this because, you know, the 70s was a long, long time ago. And I'm like, why is it taking so long? When, when are they going to get this done, right? And you have to be patient. This is like a long-term, long goal that you just have to wait for the process to work. And I, I talked to Larry Crompton um, many times on the phone, and, and every time it, we didn't find him in 2016, he's like, well, maybe this year's the year, you know, 2017 and so on. And each year, that's what he said. I hope it's this year. I hope it's soon. Um, so there were a lot of people sitting on the edge of their chair, really, uh, in slow motion, waiting for this to um, come to fruition. So I'm glad it happened in our lifetimes. I'm glad he didn't die first. I'm glad he's in you know, prison at this point. They got his DNA off of a, a car door handle first, and it was kind of a, a vague, not-so-great sample, I guess. So they went for a tissue that he had discarded in the trash. And so um, they set up the... Uh, thing to pick him up and arrest him so so they went directly they that that at that point that was so strong they didn't feel well now let's watch him some more and see if he does something or try to you know get a warrant for computers or whatever they just said we don't want him slipping away so well, he was arrested. I, I don't think i don't think he was going to slip away i think what they were worried about was that he would notice that he was being watched or followed and it was sort of like, what's the best time to get this guy, uh, you know, pick him up because they didn't want him to have access to a weapon. I don't think he had weapons. And, um, you know, who knows what, what could have happened. It could have been kind of a violent um, encounter. But he managed to be um, picked up when he was, I believe it was he, he was in the garage. And uh, so it was very uneventful, actually. So I'm sure it probably twisted his head around. He didn't expect it. I was shocked that he didn't have a plan B to get the heck out of uh, the area because he knew that they were coming for him if he was paying attention. And I think he was paying attention to the story. Um, I worried when I put out my first book when he was still free. I thought, God, you know, I thought he was two hours uh, down the road, not too terribly far geographically. And uh, I thought, God, he's going to... You know, show up on my driveway, or he could. And then I asked him, Larry, I said, do you think he'll ever show up? And he's like, no, no. <laughs> but then he would always tell me at the end of a conversation to be careful. And I said, what am I being careful of? <laughs> but it was scary because, um, you know, I knew, knew he was still out there, and I knew he wasn't too terribly far away. And if he was reading anything about himself, and he liked to read about himself, he liked to read about his crimes in the paper, in my opinion, um, then I was concerned a little bit, and I thought, you know, I'm tired of being afraid. I wanted to stand down the fear. And so I did put the book out, and once in a while it would creep into my mind, are you crazy? <laughs> are you crazy for doing this? <laughs> well, you, there are, obviously there are, uh, uh, people who have been through this uh, kind of thing would say, you know, there's hiding or there's fully open. There's probably nothing in between that's satisfying. So it's either you, okay, I'm just going to, you know, be quiet and hide, or I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to go out and crusade against him, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell my story uh, or what right. I know so, about. Just, just so you know, the, the reason I really did do this is, is there's a couple reasons. One is the fear. I wanted to get rid of it. It takes up space and time and energy in a person. And uh, it's not good for you. And then also, um, I, I want to know always why. I always 
my whole life I've wanted to know why. I want to know every detail about something, and I want to, um, you know, educate myself. I, I want to know how this occurred. And then it, it ended up sort of growing into a, this is what I found, and, and I was reporting, this is what I found, and then documenting what I found and, and asking questions, saying, well, what if he really is the same guy, and what if, um, you know, what if he committed all of these murders and he's the worst serial serial killer in in his United States history? You know, what if he is all of these terrible things uh, that we already know he is? But to what extent? How far does this go back in time? How many geographical locations did this occur? Um, how many people did he really kill or rape? And the other thing that that um, has been a lifetime thing for me is. Uh, women's issues are um, very, uh, uh, very much concerned to me. Uh, meaning, you know, back in the day, rapes were not seen as all that terrible of a crime, and in fact, they really are. And serial rapists turn into serial killers many times, actually. And what I, one of the chapters in my book that I talk about is uh, sexual burglaries, and th- what's interesting to me is um, we need more study in this area because. If the criminal justice system, if they look at different types of burglaries, and what's interesting is they classify burglaries mostly as burglaries or bur- burglaries with homicides, etc. But the the incidence of rape in a burglary is not as much reported. And in these studies, what they found is is that you can actually classify a burglar as a sexual burglar or someone who will become a, a rapist slash burglar, and and who is more dangerous actually than just a, a burglar who comes in to steal your TV and that's all his, you know, concern is. Whereas there are other types of burglars who come in and they commit other crimes while they're there, uh, whether it's uh, opportunity or if it's something that they just get off on doing. That's one of the things that I found interesting about the studies of what types of burglars that we have. So moving forward, if we know how to classify what kind of burglar somebody is, we can know how to punish them or if they're more dangerous and if they will become a serial rapist and killer like D'Angelo did. And so between that tool and the geographic profiling, which we have you know, come into our own in the last decade, um, we have some really great tools, including the genetic genealogy. And if we're not um, restricted terribly, by laws, we can opt in, like with GEDmatch, we can opt in and say, yeah, you can use my DNA for law enforcement searches, that's fine. And so that's a good tool to have as well. So we have a lot more tools that are better, and we can find these guys and figure out how dangerous they really are and try to act accordingly. Now, he was charged. He, in a couple of other cases I've dealt uh, there, I think it's good for victims that um, they go this route, but a lot of information often doesn't come out if they plead guilty, which he did to avoid the death penalty. Um, and on the back of the, your book, uh, which is Endgame, or the most of the most dangerous game, the Golden State Killer, you have you put down you know uh, guilty, I admit, and he was tra- traded his guilty pleads for s- safety in prison, if you will. Um, and then you say, listening for more than eight hours to the awful details. I'm assuming that was in his, did he do an elocution? Yes, he, he, they read in great detail 
uh, what he had done. And he would say, guilty, or I admit mm-hmm. to each one. And, and after eight hours of guilty and I admit, it was just sickening. And so again, he's uh, um, in prison um, with several life sentences and then a, a couple of years added on uh, for something. So I love 12 you know, life sentences plus uh, eight yeah. years. And um, like you said, it's not full closure um, because, you know, he decided, well, you know, he pled guilty and then there were crimes he wasn't charged with. He admitted uh, to as well. And then there's obviously still the possibility that there's ones out there um, that uh, uh, he didn't, you know, it's not been associated with him, but he, the least, now this was, again, this is the the scary part. This was uh, June of this uh, past year, 2020. And I think you mentioned, or maybe it's in a news, another news article that he had to take down his, or pull down his, um, his COVID mask uh, to speak. I mean, it was COVID time. And um, so the only thing that that probably will happen is that unless, of course, we have copycats, but it's a good chance that his modus, you know, the things that he did, things that's assigned to him in as many monikers should cease. Right. Uh, And I do think that he was still uh, peeping and doing other things, you know, while he was out there free, even though he was older, he was in really good shape um, at the time that they arrested him. So um, they, he had been caught, or, or seen rather, um, riding on a motorcycle 100 miles an hour um, while they were surveilling him. So he was in good shape, and he still, they showed him after, um, when he was acting like he was really frail and, and um, trying to act like he needed protection maybe, uh, that he really was agile. He was not fragile. He, they showed clips from him being in his cell in Sacramento County to, to prove that he was not fragile. And so he pretty much dropped that at the very end there uh, when he stood up and spoke that day. And um, that's the first time I had heard his voice in his real voice. And I was just sitting there going, oh, my God. <laughs> so you were you were in the court or, or the no. where or you mean no. just on the recording? I was watching it on YouTube right. on TV. I would like to um, actually say one more thing about this. Um, If you think about a serial killer who begins maybe as a teenager, like Ted Bundy did, and I suspect um, that others have, and and Golden State Killer may be one of those, is that um, if they have the freedom to kill and harm people over 50 years, you, you cannot imagine that it was only condensed into 1973 to 86. So when you think about a, a young D'Angelo in the 60s and moving forward, there have to be a ton more um, incidences where others were harmed. And so it would really be great to be able to close some of these cold cases and crimes against women because there were a lot of murders in the state of California. So that's what motivated me to document these uh, crimes or these um unsolved crimes. So I just wanted to say that too. Absolutely. Um, and so your books, uh, the four books on this particular uh, uh, topic are? Well, the first one was Murder on His Mind, Serial Killer, which was written prior to his um, knowing who he was and his arrest. 
and it was basically about my documenting the process I went through to try to figure out who he was, and I even profiled him myself to try to figure out where he was. So I did that one first and um, had no idea that I would do any more, and then he was arrested, surprise, surprise, so then I documented what we found out about him, and that was called The Creep Among Us, and it was written right after his arrest from April till October of 2018. And then as I continued to research, I thought, God, I have to go back and see just how much he may have been responsible for in case we never hear anything more. And there's a lot of us who do that. There's a lot of people who are investigating who check out, you know, other crimes, things that happened in Visalia that were not charged. There's murders down there. There were attacks of young girls down there. There were in Sacramento, Placerville, um, just all the places geographically that he was present. There are unsolved murders and disappearances of women. And so that's important to never forget uh, that there are a lot of answers still out there to be found. And so I went on with What If Golden State Killer, which ran me smack into the Zodiac again with the geography involved and also the similarity in M.O. and what he did. So What If Golden State Killer Zodiac was in 2019. And, of course, we followed the court cases and uh, tried to figure out exactly why this was um, missed. You know, at the very end, the end game was about um, some of the things that happened when, in Sacramento, Dwayne Lowe was the sheriff and different things that occurred, just more information about maybe how this happened. I'm trying to share that and document it for everybody, and that's what this has been about. Now, just one last thing, the, the, um, and then we're going to tell people how to get the books, but um, you do mention it in the book, but I, I forgot. Uh, I'm an old guy. Um, you mentioned the cover art, which is very striking, and that it was purposeful not just to, get, to catch your eye. That's, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that hadn't been spoken about um, up until, um, well, there, you know, there were so many crimes that D'Angelo did commit that one of the things that he did also do was arson. Uh, there were a lot of fires, and uh, there were murders and fires. There were different things that happened. And so what attracted me instantly was the fire. Uh, there was an evil face in the fire on the cover of this book. And it just spoke to me because it was also an aspect. It was the rage that he felt and the viciousness of his crimes and his, his MO, his sadistic nature that I just felt like this was the right um, cover for the end. And it is a wonderful cover. Now, um, so uh, what's the best way uh, for people? I don't know if you have a, a, a website or, a, you know, a, a, um, an author's website, or obviously I just uh, Googled it and got it, you know, through Amazon. But is there anything more direct that people can do? Sure. Um, I have anpen.wordpress. Uh, Com, and then there's a blog there and articles and different information. I've had that since 2017, and you can contact me through that. I also have an email address, anpen13 at gmail.com. And then also um, I have um, I have different um, information in my books in the very back that tell you about different podcasts I've done and different other information how to reach um, me. So um, I have a uh, what do you call it? Facebook page and Twitter. <laughs> so you can try me that way too. 
And uh, with a name like Solonowski, I'm always uh, aware of spelling. Your name, though, not complicated. It's Ann Penn. Uh, everywhere that you mention Ann Penn, it's spelled the same way, and that's A-N-N-E, Penn, P-E-N-N. My intention, just so you know, moving forward after this COVID is under control, it kind of stopped me in the water for a while here, is that I would like to change some of the laws in the state of California uh, for women uh, moving forward. And, and they did eventually, um, they eventually changed the statute of limitations for rape. Now there is none. So like murder, it can still be prosecuted. My objective is to bring answers, hopefully, to other families, um, you know, maybe get some attention to um, other unsolved cases. And who knows? I mean, there's other killers out there. Joseph D'Angelo certainly wasn't the only one. So, but justice is justice. And even if it's late, it's still uh, necessary. It's still needed. So, Excellent. Well, uh, I hope uh, my my listeners out there have enjoyed uh, this conversation. I certainly have. And that's, hey, it's my podcast, so I want to enjoy it. So again, my guest uh, this afternoon was Ann Penn, who uh, is author of four books we went over. But the the one that, that got my attention and, and uh, helped me reach out to her was called Endgame of the Most Dangerous Game, the Golden State Killer. And so again, once again, I want to thank you, Ann. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you.